Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today I'm joined by 9-11 activist and author and journalist John Gold. John Gold coined the term 9-11 truther. But before you switch this podcast off, you would be surprised to find out that John is very different from what you would now in 2018 consider a 9-11 truther. He's worked directly with victims' family members of the 9-11 attacks and has combined together many dozens of factual narratives about 9-11 from many, many credible sources that largely contradict or differ from what we know officially about 9-11 from the Bush administration or the 9-11 commission. So welcome to the show again, John. Very glad to have you back. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, Thanks for having me on and thanks for that uh, little introduction. So, John, you've been doing this um, for over 15 years now. How do, you, how do you feel just looking back on that amount of time that you spent? I don't regret doing it. It was always the right thing to do. Um, when your government acts questionably, it's our responsibility to ask questions of them. And with regard to 9-11... There are just so many questionable actions uh, that deserve to be brought to light. And that's, I've tried to do that. I've tried to help the families. I've tried to help the responders. Where are we today? There was a a few articles that said the the death of the 9-11 truth movement. I don't know. Do you remember those? Of course. Um, And debunkers tried to say that we were all dead. But there are people who still are active in this cause, but they're very different from the support the 9-11 families, support the 9-11 responders, put an end to the post 9-11 world by using the truth, something we have been denied by the government, which was my definition for the phrase 9-11 truth or someone who does all of those things. Just recently, there were a number of individuals, uh, some politicians and others who weren't, that were attacked for you know, questioning 9-11 at one time or making statements that sounded like what a 9-11 truther would say. You know, it was like the Van Jones thing. And during the Obama administration, he signed the 9-11 statement from 2004, and that was brought up and he was made to resign from the Obama administration. So in the last week, uh, Lawanda Mayfield, Amanda Young Colucci, Bill Fowle, Dante Stallworth, I do know that name, and Trevor Bauer were attacked for being, quote, 9-11 truthers. Abby was as well in a recent smear piece in, in the New York Times. She was briefly mentioned. Again? Uh, I don't know if you, I mean, this was fairly recently. It was in that, in that intellectual dark web article by Barry Weiss, the New York Times. I don't think I've read that. Yeah, and also the Real News Network came under scrutiny by the Southern Poverty Law Center, someone tried to characterize them as a truther network. I see that, but I didn't know that it came from the Southern Poverty Law Center. It, it did originally, and then they retracted the article about a day later. Um, but it, it still was on their site for about 24 hours. It's good that they retracted it because the Real News Network has been the Real News Network for a long time now. I mean, they've done a tremendous job with amazing you know just done amazing things over the years 
Well, that was that's part of why I brought them up is because what's interesting is in the SPLC piece, the guy links to, the author's name is Alexander Reed Ross, he links to a section on their website which has all of their 9-11-centric segments, you know, interviews with Colleen Rowley about, um, you know, some of the stuff she's talked about, about 9-11 on, the sh- on their shows. And he was trying to con- to conflate that with sort of like the larger world of 9-11 conspiracies. And I just thought that was interesting because Real News has actually been quite careful and very delicate about the way they've approached the subject. You know, I don't know exactly where Paul Jay is on, on the subject, but they're one of the more credible institutions out there that's still questioning and bringing on people who question 9-11. Paul Jay had Bob Graham on so many times, more than any other network, I think. Yeah, I mean, he probably helped, you know, his network probably helped tip the scales, you know, for that for that to get out there. So Part of the problem, people need to understand, when I say that I don't know the truth about 9-11, isn't that a problem in and of itself? Isn't that something that we should resolve? I mean, you know, when I say I don't know, and I've been doing this for so long, that's pretty bad. So... Well, of course. I mean, and that's what brings me to the title of your new book, which is why I brought you on Media Roots Radio today. You have a new book that just came out. It's over a thousand pages long. It is free at the website we were lied to about 911.com. It is also the title of the book, We Were Lied to About 911. And it's a series of transcribed interviews from your podcast. Basically, I mean, it's one of the most hard hitting books in terms of delivering hard-hitting, contradictory information that contradicts the 9-11 official story. And you interview, I mean, you interview so many amazing people in the book. Like, why did, like, give me just, you know, uh, some reasons why you use that title. Like, you already sort of explained why you have stopped using the term 9-11 truther, because when people, you know, think of that term now, it's just basically a pejorative, or it's associated with so many different you know, wacky theories anywhere from no planes hit the World Trade Center, um, you know, to space beams destroyed the World Trade Center. So why did I call it? We were lied to. I've actually been saying that. I looked it up on my website since around 2006, and I've probably been saying it before that. I was never, I never liked the phrase 9-11 was an inside job. If I had a wish, I wish all of the signs over the years that have said said that thing said we were lied to about 9-11 instead because that's an absolute factual statement um, and there are many provable lies concerning 9-11 so you know I used to say people say that 9-11 was an inside job and yet we're still asking questions or how can you know that 9-11 was an inside job if you're still just asking questions and so forth it was a contradictory a premise in the movement, the 9-11 truth movement. I and it's just also very oversimplified. To me, it's like screaming Elvis is alive at people. You know, it's no different today. They well, that's this- how it's seen now, yeah. Even if there is, even if you boil down the essential elements to what that phrase actually means, you break it down, It, you know, it's likely that that's the case, very likely, but the phrase itself became sort of a meme, you know, that was just trumpeted out like, you know, in it, like any other wacky conspiracy thing would be. I, again, I've been saying that we were lied to about 9-11 for so long that it's just what I've stuck with. And again, it's an absolute truth, and it's something I can prove within a minute. I've said it for years to keep it simple. When trying to reach out to people, 
always keep it simple. Don't get into the complexities of so many different things. You know, we were told there were no warnings. We can show very simply that that was a lie. And the 9-11 report kind of covered some of the warnings, but yeah. they didn't get into all of them by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this is, I mean, this kind of reminds me of when you were saying this, this kind of reminds me of how cocaine trafficking by the CIA is seen now, where large amounts of regular people now believe that that actually happened and they don't question it as sort of a conspiracy theory. And that's, you know, how many years after cocaine trafficking in South America. But now, you know, a lot of people have come around to this idea that there were warnings um, and that maybe the Bush administration, you know, fibbed a little bit about that. But it's like they haven't really acknowledged the fact that it was people like you and other so-called 9-11 truthers who were saying these things when all that information was already known, um, you know, very early on, but they were all ignored or mocked, you know, or smeared even, and just conflated with the craziest, fringiest elements of sort of the 9-11 truth community. But those same people now will acknowledge, like Matt Taibbi, for example, which you had a dialogue with, he will acknowledge that we were lied to about 9-11, but yet he chooses David Ray Griffin sort of as the end-all inside this container is this what what defines 9-11 truth even though david ray griffin was the one who sort of concocted that these were robotic voices that called the you know families from the planes theory so he's not you know necessarily the best messenger of the of these narrative that you know these truthful narratives that you're really trying to get people to pay attention to not to shit on him but i'm just saying i mean just using him as a counterexample. example 9-11 family members got together at the national press club in September of 2006, calling for a new investigation. Only one news outlet in the country covered that. Uh, the Jersey Girls called for a new investigation in February of 2008. Only Raw Story covered that. So why are they dishonoring the family members? You know, throw it right back in their faces. Why aren't you covering that? Why are you dishonoring the family members? Kind oh. of thing. It's just such a cynical ploy on the media's part because they weren't doing their job. That's how they characterize basically citizen journalists who are popping up who who were like something's wrong here. You of know, course. on just a basic level, a lot of people had that reaction. We were being lied to, not just about the Iraq war, but a lot of the shit leading up to it too. I mean, let's also just mention really quickly that there was a second attack after 9/11 that was the 2001 anthrax attacks. Most people really haven't questioned that either, even though we know, you know, the Bush administration was given a Cipro warning in advance. And journalists like Richard Cohen for The Washington Post were given a Cipro tip from a high level government official. He actually says this in an article before most people had even heard of it, he says. So it's, it's like looking back on all this stuff, it should be such it, to me, it's just common sense to say that we, you know, there's so many questions still here. If how many people actually know we were lied to about the anthrax attacks that knew back when we were pushing them like really big or even remembers them at all? That's that's a, well, that's one thing that the news has, has tried to do. You know, there were people saying that there were no terrorist attacks since 9-11 during the Bush administration. Do you remember that? Of and, course. And then there were the anthrax attacks. They weren't terrorist attacks. But there were the anthrax attacks as well, and everybody seemed to forget that. But that's how they were trying to portray it. Like, Bush has protected us since 
that was the last time I can remember them coming up like that in the press. It was used to sort of, yeah, it was used to debunk that. Um, even though, which is bizarre because it ended up, and the media didn't really mention how it ended up being a, like a, you know, pinning on a white guy, scientist for a bioweapons lab. Yeah, that, um, I'm sure, you know, that made the news, but it certainly did not get the coverage that Michael Jackson's death got or the ice bucket challenge or any of these things that make it into the news. Well, let's go just a little bit into who are the Jersey Widows. Um, for people who aren't familiar with the, what happened, you know, like this, this and the 9-11 Family Steering Committee, explain what that was and how you got involved with some of those um, 9-11 victims, family members, like why and how that was also memory hold, you know, like we're talking about the anthrax, how that people, most people forget that. I think the majority of people don't even know that this occurred, that there was a 9-11 Family Steering Committee and that they were all people who had suffered losses from 9-11 and were totally marginalized or, or erased in the press. And I, During the time of the 9-11 Commission, before the, the time of the 9-11 Commission even, the Jersey Girls, who are Lori Van Auken, Kristen Bratweiser, Mindy Kleinberg, and Patty Casaza, they all lost their husbands on 9-11. Um, they were in the news a lot. They were in the media a lot. They were uh, women of the year in Miss Magazine, and, um, you know, they were very well known. If you said, do you know who the Jersey Girls are? A lot of people back in those days said, yes, we do know who they are. But if you ask people today if they know who they are, they have, they don't, they have no clue. So the Jersey Girls were the ones who fought for the creation of the 9-11 Commission. During the time of the Joint Congressional Inquiry, Kristen Bratweiser gave testimony as to why we need a, a blue ribbon panel, something to, to investigate this, because the Joint Congressional Inquiry was limited to just the intelligence agencies. And <clears throat> they wanted, you know, look at NORAD and the FAA and, and everything else. So they had been fighting for it for a long time. And other family members were fighting for it as well. It wasn't just the four of them. You know, they had a rally. In June, June 11th, 2002, in Washington, D.C., um, where family members showed up calling for an independent investigation and stuff like that. So that's what they did. They were essentially, they forced Washington, D.C. to do what Washington, D.C. did not want to do, which was have an investigation, a real, you know, independent investigation. Can you imagine? We, we, we okay, as corrupt and co compromised. As the 9-11 Commission was, we would not even have had that if not for them. And I don't even think they're mentioned in the 9-11 Museum, like the Memorial Museum in New York. They were not in the shop, which, you know, was the predecessor to that memorial. Uh, the 9-11 Press for Truth was not in that shop, but United 93 was. There was a little shop that was a, a precursor to the memorial um, <clears throat> around Ground Zero that had no mention of them whatsoever. And that that's so sad to me because uh, they deserve accolades upon accolades upon accolades for what they did. They deserve to be in, in the history books. Um, and the, the Family Steering Committee was made up of 12 9-11 family members, and I couldn't name all of them um, off the top of my head, but they monitored 
the 9-11 Commission, during the time of the 9-11 Commission, um, they provided hundreds and hundreds of well-researched questions for them to answer. And, you know, um, they released press releases after press release during the time of the 9-11 Commission. And if you read all of these press releases, you can see how corrupt and compromised the 9-11 Commission was. And the news certainly did not bring attention to any of those press releases. When I first started talking to you, John, I was debating about the idea of of doing a movie about the 9-11 Commission, going through all the C-SPAN footage and trying to compile something with that. And I remember one of the first things that really hit me about watching a lot of it, especially the press conferences the commission uh, heads were doing, um, even before it started, um, there was like virtually no one from the press there in the audience. It's almost like they didn't care. Um, and there was members from, you know, 9-11 family members in the audience. And there was people like John Judge there, um, you know, in the, at these press conferences, but they were... Uh, disturbingly empty. And I don't know if that's because the Iraq war was ramping up, you know, around the same time, or if it's just because they all journalists in DC dropped the ball on this. But um, I just remember being quite, quite upset when I rewatched that footage, you know, just thinking, wow, they really, they really seem to be a total blackout, but not imposed blackout, just they just voluntarily chose not to cover it. And that's it's well, very it's, disturbing. They did. This is covered in 9-11 Press for Truth, the documentary. Um, it was pretty much ignored. There wasn't a lot of news about it. And when I watched the 9-11 Commission hearings, I watched them at night when they were rebroadcasted because I was working mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and they were rebroadcast just on like C-SPAN, right? I mean, yeah, just C-SPAN. This wasn't like they weren't hearing they weren't doing live hearings of this on like NBC News. No. And when, you know, when Richard Clark testified, that's when the news started to cover things because he apologized, which no one in the Bush administration had done. The families loved him for that. It brought into question things Condoleezza said, I think, um, you know, it resulted in Condoleezza Rice having to testify, which she didn't want to do. The Bush administration didn't want people to testify. <clears throat> so they had to fight for Condoleezza Rice to testify. And she finally did. And that's when the TV cameras showed up and, you know, it was a big, dramatic thing. It was, but if I remember correctly, even at the time that that happened, it was kind of like a blip. It it happened. There were some headlines about it at the time, and then it went away. And I don't even rem I personally didn't even remember it until the Fahrenheit 9/11 DVD came out, and it was a special bonus feature yep. on Michael Moore's film. And I remember watching it, thinking, I feel like Michael Moore is trying to hint at something here you know like at the very least like it's kind of taking fahrenheit 9 11 to a whole new level it puts some new context on the whole thing when you watch that after the release of the 9 11 report when the myth of 9 11 was set in stone the the family members who used to get on the television became persona non grata and that primarily was the jersey girls yeah uh, and then they started releasing their own press releases yep. before them. Um, and sometimes Monica Gabrielle, who lost her husband, Richard, on all of them. Do you mind if I mention Ann Coulter's role in this? Oh, God. Go ahead. It's I mean, horrible. 
I mean, and the sad part is I remember when this, when this was happening, I remember hearing a little bit about the, the Jersey girls and their, their cause, but I remember it being completely overshadowed by these horrific comments and Ann Coulter was making about them, just telling them to shut up, you know? Um, and, and I remember Matt Lauer sitting down with her to interview her about shitting on the Jersey widows and I don't remember Matt Lauer giving the Jersey Widows an interview, did he? No. So, I mean, what, what does that tell you about the priorities the media had, you know, to actually seriously look into this? It's pathetic. Larry King spoke to Kristen Bratweiser eventually. Yes. What happened was in June of 2006, the very first premiere of 9-11 Press for Truth happened in Chicago. And it, it seemed like not long after that, the news about what Ann Coulter said in her book came out, and that seemed to get so much news. I don't remember the, the exact time, but I do remember Ray Novoselsky, the director of 9-11 Press for Truth, um, thought he could use that as an opportunity to bring attention to the film. You know, Ann Coulter saying this, that, and the other thing about the Jersey Girls, and here we have a documentary starring them that puts into question the entire official account of 9-11. Yeah. You know, let's bring attention to that. Let's bring attention, let you know, all that kind of stuff. And that didn't work, obviously. But Ann Coulter got so much damn attention. And I made a movie about it, and it's available on my YouTube channel called The Wrong Focus, which is pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, the Jersey Girls and the, the 9-11 Press for Truth was released. The families called for a new investigation at the press, uh, National Press Club. And in, who was getting all the attention? It was Ann Coulter and stuff. So, of course. And then there was even a backlash against 9/11 Truth from 9/11 Truthers themselves. Certain ones who felt that uh, it was advocating for some kind of attack on Pakistan. I remember all these people were saying that, and that wasn't my interpretation of the film at all. It was just bringing up the IS potential ISI connections to the attacks. But the film in no way was alleging that Pakistan as some kind of nation state attacked us on 9-11. It was just sort of bringing together, you know, look, there's there's an ISI connection to this. There's also Saudi connections to this. Um, and then also things that seem beyond incompetence on the American side. Um, so I just remember it getting unfairly criticized from within the 9-11 truth movement. But it's, I mean, it remains to this day, um, and hats off to Ray, I feel like we're not talking enough about your book and I want to, and I, and I don't want to keep you on here too long. So I want to, I want to spend the rest of it as much as we can focusing on your book. We were lied to about nine 11, because even though you're talking, you see, I feel like you operate in two different modes. You are talking, you have talked a lot so far about your activism side and your dedication to that and all the work and energy you put into it and your philosophy behind it. And one of the things that I've heard you say is, you want to keep it simple. You want to keep it grounded. You know, this is not, I'm not using your exact words, but you did say simple. And, you know, and I'm assuming you want to keep it more grounded and factual. That's been sort of your method of doing this. I think there's another mode that you've operated in that we haven't talked enough about, which is sort of your encyclopedic knowledge about the many different ways in which actual documented evidence contradicts the official story. And in some ways, completely tailspins it into areas that, you know, that need to be investigated with teams of reporters, 
because they're you know they're, they're these rabbit holes if you want if you want to call them go so deep even if we're just talking about something like the Alex station for example which is a whole aspect of 911 that a lot of people haven't you know really explored who are in this world or even general reporters haven't explored so in your book i think one of the most valuable things about it is that you basically compile a group of people together who are you know some of the most credible figures who have poked holes in the 911 official story that are out that's, there that's what i tried to do and i think I did. you didn't you did an amazing job of that and i think just that alone makes your book a valuable map. didn't want to have authors talking about their theories. I kind of wanted to get people that actually were a part of the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, for the most part. And I did have you on. I had Eric Larson on. I had uh, John Albanese on. And the, these weren't people that were part of the story. They were more researchers and activists, such as yourself. But for the most part, I tried to get people that were actually part of it, that could tell people, you know, credible things. And, you know, I was very fortunate to get the guests that I did get. And I had help from people, you know, like with Senator Bob Graham, I, I, somebody helped me with that, get in touch with him, um, through his daughter. And, you know, so it was an amazing experience. And I, this book is essentially four years in the making. And the reason that I did it was because I broke my back five years ago. And I've been dealing with a lot of complications and pain and stuff like that ever since. And I've been homebound a lot. And I get bored. Imagine that. And I was talking to Mickey Huff, who is the director of Project Censored. And he said, well, why don't you transcribe all your interviews and put them into a book? And that's a lot of work. And I, you know, but it instantly sounded like a good idea to me. You know, when I read things, I digest things a lot better than when I hear them. I remember things a lot better when I read them. I can go back and reread something if I need to. I can do a search in a document for a specific thing if I want to, whereas trying to go through an interview and trying to get to that exact moment where they say something about it's just ridiculous. So it was a great idea to me. And unfortunately, I despise transcribing. <laughs> so I paid someone, Michelle Fergus, to do that for me. And she did an amazing, amazing job, and it took over well over a year for her to do. And she didn't, you know, there were times that she faced, you know, stress from having read this because this, all this was new to her. She didn't know a lot of this stuff. So as she would read things, it would just stress her out. And she, you know, I just, just as much as it stresses us out. So she did a great job. And Scott Ford, designed the book cover. Uh, he designed the teaser posters for the book and he did a fantastic job. And I think he was invited to show these posters at an art show in Pittsburgh in September. That's great. As yeah, shout out to Scott. Great yes, job on the art. And it was essentially four years in the making. You know, all the work I did with the interviews and researching. So I would ask the right questions and that kind of stuff and brought things to the table for the people to comment about and, you know, all that work and then the work on top of doing the whole book thing. I didn't, again, didn't do the transcriptions. I did the editing and I released it for free. And why did I release it for free? Because I didn't do this shit for so many years to keep it to myself. I didn't do this so that only people who could afford the book could read this information. I wanted it to be available for everyone. And so that's why 
I release it for free. It's my gift to everybody, essentially. Well, thank you very much for doing that, John. I mean, it's it's just such a valuable resource. I hope it is. I hope it really is over the years. And and you mentioned this idea of you 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 strive to interview mostly people who are part actually part of the story itself. And I just want you to quickly give me a sort of a synopsis of of who all those people are from from this book who you interviewed who sort of are part of the story. Um, you know, I mean, not, not to denigrate or, or, or marginalize like the journalists and different researchers you talk to. We're going to go into some of those, but quickly go over the actual people that you interviewed who are part of the story itself. All right. The very first interview I did was with Jenna Orkin, who is the biggest, one of the biggest advocates re- with regard to the environmental impact of 9-11, something we were lied to about. She started the WTCO organization, which I don't remember what the acronym stands for off the top of my head. Um, and she was, you know, worked with Hugh Kaufman, who was a ombudsman from the EPA. And, you know, she was just involved from the very beginning. So I, I never knew about the environmental impact of 9-11 until I heard Jenna speak in, in September of 2004. And it just made such an impact on me. I had no idea that these things were going on. And then the responders started to get sick. And I just start, I was paying so much attention to that. From that point, that's why I had her on. Um, she was such an influence to me. The fourth person, or fifth person, I think was Colleen Raleigh. She's a 9-11 whistleblower. Um, she was part of the, the story. You know, uh, the sixth person was Lori Van Auken, a Jersey girl, September 11th advocate, who lost her husband that day, who was responsible, partly responsible for the creation of the 9-11 commission. She was part of the story. Um, you know, Senator Bob Graham, pretty obvious. Uh, Phil Sheenan was a New York Times reporter who was sent to cover the 9-11 commission as it was happening. Uh, he's one of the reasons I had him on. Um, you know, Thomas Drake, another whistleblower who, who has explosive information about 9-11. You know, again, part of the story. So that's, that's what I tried to do. And all of my guests were absolutely amazing. And every interview that I did has an, ab- an absolutely important aspect to it. Um, and I tried to show what that was in the beginning with the introductions for each of the interviews, what, what the topic would be. Like when I spoke to you, we talked about torture as it relates to the 9-11 report. We talked about presidential daily briefings and how that was covered up. Um, you know, Everyone was an amazing interview. My favorite interviews were with family members, you know, Lori and Bob. and oh, They were all my favorite interviews. But, you know, the hardest one was, I think, Senator Bob Grant. Just being prepared for that, um, trying to be in the right frame of mind, not aggressive. You know, try to be respectful and, and all that stuff. And, you know, and Paul Thompson, that... It was a hard interview because Paul knows so much information. It's hard to keep up. And he knows, you know, he knows more than I do about 9-11. I I think he certainly does. He did the complete 9-11 timeline. Again, the hardest one was Senator Bob Graham. I guess, you know, the favorite ones were the the family members. There was an interesting uh, one one person you interviewed who was uh, hostile to, to the work that you're doing. Um, and you could argue that he's part of the story because 
he's not only what you would describe as a debunker who interviewed all these truthers. He did kind of a, what John Ronson would, would kind of did with crazy rulers of the world, I think. But he did it in a much more hostile and sort of dishonest way where he interviewed a lot of truthers, um, and including you, I believe, in his book, right? I think we spoke on the phone, yes. And he talked about my he used essentially, you know, my caring about the family members against me, saying that they're the last people that we should be listening to or something to that effect. I, I don't remember. He said that So you were in the book though. You were in his book Among the Truthers that he wrote. Yeah, but he didn't say that I'm the one who coined the phrase nine eleven yeah. truth. He didn't do any of that stuff. Well well he interviewed quite a few you know, truthers. Um and this this book was written while he was a traveling fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, um, which is actually the first time I've seen an example of a 9-11 debunker who sort of made a career off of doing this, um, who's actually part of a neocon think tank that helped write up war plans for the Bush administration. Um, so I thought that was very strange um, and kind of just telling that that's the direction that he would be coming from. Um, so he has, let's just say he has a conflict of interest in trying to maintain the 9-11 official story. <laughs> I really do question the motives of people who are, have the, have it, their, one of their agendas is to just rewrite history like this. I would say that what, that's kind of a variation of rewriting history. And so is also what we touched on earlier is this idea that this all comes from Alex Jones. Um, right. instead of being really strongly present in left anti-war circles, sort of like, you know, um, you know, during the Iraq war and stuff. So I guess let's go into, um, your, your Paul Thompson interview, because it takes up a large portion of your book and the interview ended up being four parts on you and it's in its viewable on YouTube. Um, now explain who Paul Thompson is and why he's so important um, and like what he's, you know, what, what the, the complete 9-11 timeline actually is. But uh, uh, an article that he wrote along with somebody by the name of Alan Wood called An Interesting Day, which goes over the events of George W. Bush that day, um, was sent to me by a friend. And I, I didn't know any. He, he was interested in it kind of thing and it so i read it and i was like wow this is amazing this is and we talked about it for days it was just days and days of, of talking about it so paul did the complete 9-11 timeline he released a book in 2004 called the terror timeline and what he did was is he took you know thousands of different articles from mainstream sources and created a timeline and his argument is essentially that the news does report on the news but it doesn't give it um, the attention it does, like for instance, you'll find something in the back section of a newspaper that should have been on the front page. Um, and what he did is he read all these articles and he started seeing all these contradictions from these mainstream news sources. And so he put that together. Um, and how can you say, you know, back in the day, how could you say mainstream articles are, you can't trust them. They're, they're discredited and and all that stuff, you just couldn't do it back then. Like you're using their words against them, essentially. The government was connected to the the mainstream media uh, greatly. So if the mainstream media is reporting this, then 
you know, you're using, quote, their words against them kind of thing, the establishment's words against them. Kind of what was his thinking, I think. Well, yeah, and and I mean, and what he did was, so the, like, I mean, I guess what you're sort of describing is kind of almost the purpose of laying out such a detailed timeline is that once you just start laying it out chronologically, all the available public information, you start to get a lot of contradictions just immediately, just out of that process itself. Am I am I wrong about that? I mean, that's kind of... And you also see context. You get context for things in his timeline. Absolutely. Like if you click on an entry before that, you'll see 10 previous entries that have to do with that leading up to that event. So it gives you a greater context. That's something the news hasn't done. You know, the news has sometimes covered some of the cover-ups of 9-11 over the years, primarily having to do with Saudi Arabia. But there have been other things like NORAD, for instance, uh, when that first was reported, I think, in August of 2006. Uh, the NORAD timeline changing. Yeah, yeah. And, and how that was all. There was never a. The 9-11 Commission considered referring them to the Justice Department for a criminal investigation. When that news came out, that was covered, I think, one day on the news. Yeah. But. You know, the news, when they report something, a cover-up of 9-11, they won't say in the beginning, knowing that the 9-11 Commission was absolutely corrupt and compromised, now we have this problem to deal with. They won't do that. That's how they re- – everything's in a vacuum. Of them. course. Well, that's that's why it's so important, yeah, to put to, – when you start just patching it together, you're just, you really do get context – just so people understand what the ni- what the nine eleven timeline is and where it's available online, it is a a section of the website historycommons.org, um, which is how the website originally that was what it was based on originally was the nine eleven the complete nine eleven timeline. Since that timeline has been developed by Paul Thompson, it's been fleshed out, sort of crowdsourced, in terms of anyone can contribute factual additional pieces to that timeline you mean you can go back and look at his original timeline but since then they have a more an expanded one that is, is you can that's been added to um, oh, sure. a lot over time is what since i'm saying released his book i mean it's it's I mean, absolutely i mean it's it's so dense that you could spend a career of journalism just looking in and trying to patch together the entire timeline and i just mean almost like just looking at a two-year span even not even looking at, you know, it goes back into the 70s and the 60s. I mean, it goes back really far, linking back a lot of Al-Qaeda origins and things like that. So, To give credit to people like Derek Mitchell, who actually owns the site, um, and other people, they've created other timelines on that. You know, the Anthrax has a timeline on there, the Anthrax attacks. Very important lot. for my own research, yeah, for sure. The lead up to the Iraq war, there's a timeline for that. The torture. I mean, there's so many different timelines on there. So it's not just the complete 9-11 timeline. And so many people aren't even aware that this website exists today. They did back in the day. And it was originally called Cooperative Research. But It's a shame, yeah. I mean, and it's actually kind of funny, too, that you'll never, you rarely ever see any debunkers um, trying to go after anything Paul Thompson has done. And the only instance I can remember that I saw it was that website, I think it was 911myths.com, maybe, which said that the website had like a history of cherry picking information, which I just thought was immediately hilarious because that is the opposite of what the website does. 
I mean, yeah, if you're just looking only at the synopsis, maybe, I guess you can make that argument, but that would be totally misrepresenting uh, what the website, the purpose the website serves, which is to show everything with so much context and give you such a deeper timeline of events than anything else you can find that it's actually probably the most, it is the most complete 9-11 timeline out there. When I, when I, you know, Paul was the very first guest I wanted to have, and I was done 30 shows. I, my last show was with uh, John Newman about Ahmed Omar Saeed Sheikh, which was very interesting. And I thought I was done at that point because I couldn't get in touch with Paul. Finally, I think it was almost a year or a year and a half after I finished the last episode, I got in touch with him. And I finally managed to do the interview that I wanted to do. And I think it was almost four hours long, which is why it was split into four parts. But it's so information intensive. I mean, the two of us together talking about this stuff, it, it just, you know, like I said, I told you earlier that things pop out of my head sometimes, I, you know, just from talking about other things. It's, it's amazing how many things pop out of my head that I don't even remember I remember. So <laughs> when we were talking together, it was just, it was a really long conversation, but it was really information intensive. And he talked so much about, you know, you know, why would Saudi Arabia want to take out Iraq prior to 9-11 and just so many different things. Like we talked about ISIS and that's another important thing about this book is that many of the interviews that took place took place during the time when ISIS started to be formed. You know, so we talked a lot about the truth about how ISIS came into existence during these interviews. So it's important for today's history to read through that. Uh, Nafiz Ahmed, I did an interview. We talked extensively about that. Paul and I, again, talked about that. We talked about so many things. We talked about the 28 pages. We talked about um, the history of using terrorism, you know, all that stuff. Paul is not a theorist. That's something he made clear a long time ago. He doesn't consider himself a conspiracy theorist. Um, he's a researcher, and he wants answers to questions. And so he would often you know, not put together theories. You would just show this information and ask the right questions because of that information. And the way that he put things together to me, he was such an influence to me. When I finally saw him for the first time um, in September of 2004 during the 9-11 omission hearings, I was just floored by him. And all he was doing was talking about the warnings. Um, and then I saw him talk in... July 2005 at the Truth Emergency Convergence in Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C. And, you know, again, he focused on the warnings, but he started to talk about Bush's many statements that were similar. If I had any inkling whatsoever that terrorists were going to attack, I would have moved heaven and earth. And he said that constantly. And I think Condoleezza Rice, within the last two to three years, Use that very same phrase, inkling, if I had any inkling or we had any inkling, you know, that this was going to happen. So he, he's acted like we had no inkling whatsoever that this was going to happen. That was Bush. OK, then go look at the warnings. Then go look at the PDBs, the titles of the PDBs. Um, by the way, the, the, the PDBs, one of the regrets that I have now, I, Kurt Eichenwald, um, He's a questionable source now, from what I've seen. Do you agree with that? 
of course. I've been, me and you have been talking about this for several years since I learned about that he was the one who wrote that story that was something like Bush was deaf to 9-11 warnings, using all those previously unseen PDBs that he apparently is the only one who actually saw or at least admitted to seeing. But yes, you're right. He's not necessarily a credible source anymore. That's, you know, one of my regrets about the interviews, but you know, it's it's a moot point because you know there are um, senior executive information briefs available at the George Washington University Archive. You know about that? I, I don't remember the website. They're called SEIBs, and they're what subordinates would get the presidential daily briefings, but for subordinates, so they don't get all of the information; they get some of it. So we were able to see some of those. I didn't read through all of them. And again, you know, Phil Sheenan reported on the titles of some of the PDBs in his book, and they were just, um, you know, imminent, attacks are imminent, or something to that effect. You know, they called it the summer of warnings, I think, or the summer of threats. And that they people were suffering from, quote, warning fatigue because of the amount of warnings that people were receiving. So yeah, Paul Thompson is, is a, definitely an oracle of, of 9-11 information, and... Um other information too. Other information as well. Um, but his contribution is invaluable. And John has um, done a lot of work, um, you know, sort of piggybacking on the information available in the 9-11 timeline and, and, and bringing, you know, more light to it. I used to refer to myself as a poor man's Paul Thompson. <laughs> but, you know, I'm different than Paul because I was an activist too. Well, yeah. Like I was going out with signs and and you're willing to speculate too i mean sure you know but i'll say that i don't know well yeah i mean that's the that's to me the most honest thing you can uh, any 9-11 researcher can say let me say something really quick about theories okay theories exist because those who should be able to answer our questions refuse to do so okay and it's human nature for people to theorize as to the reasons why so there's nothing wrong, quote, with theorizing. What's wrong is when you state them as fact, like they're absolute fact. There were no hijackers. You know, the planes were remote controlled. I wasn't on those planes. I couldn't tell you what happened on them, you know, other than the, the accounts that we have. But, you know, if the accounts that we have are fake, I couldn't tell you because I wasn't on those planes. So it's a lot of speculation and stuff. And there are other more solid things to focus on, essentially. Yeah, that that don't require theories and stuff that just show a contradiction. If somebody makes us this statement, and then there's other information that shows that that statement was false, there you go. You have something right there to to ask a question about. Why did you say this when this happened, or when this was said, or why did you say this one day and say this the next? It's just it's not it's not hard. Yeah. But I think it is hard because of what you're talking about. There is sort of a curiosity factor. Oh, of course. Where people want to make sense of it all um, and put the cart before the horse. You know, they don't, it's like, it's hard to sit in that truth, you know, for too long where you really don't, you, you kind of have to tell yourself, like, I don't know. Well, I'm tired of theories. I've been tired of theories for years and I made my own theories over the years. I want some damn answers already. So you interview, um, 
a couple other people that I wanted to touch on as well um, for your book, We Were Lied to About 9-11. Um, one of those people is an FBI whistleblower um, named Colleen Rowley. Why don't you describe who she is and why, why she's important to um, the larger story of 9-11? Well, Colleen Rowley is a 9-11 whistleblower. Um, there was something... Uh, the FBI Minneapolis field office, the FBI's radical fundamentalist unit. You know, there was a statement that Robert Mueller made, and I don't remember what the exact statement was, but Colleen Raleigh wrote a letter calling him out, essentially. And she was made Times 2002's Person of the Year because of it, along with two other people who were whistleblowers. There was a time when whistleblowers were seen as heroes in this country. And now... You know, people are terrified to be whistleblowers because of what happened to people like Chelsea Manning, what happened to people like Thomas Drake, you know, what happened to people like Bill Binney and other people. You know, Colleen was very fortunate that she really different, didn't suffer um, blowback from it as far as retaliation is concerned. Um, but, you know, there were people at her office who had problems kind of, you know, with her, whatever. But she's an amazing individual who's just been an amazing activist over the years. And, you know, she was, again, part of the story. She was an FBI agent. Well, one thing that uh, Colleen, um, she told me that there was a um, Marine JAG officer, I believe his name was Skip Bowman, um, who uh, had, did, did, you didn't mention his name already, right? No, I did not mention Skip Bowman. But but what was his actual role that Colleen Rowley says that he had? He he did something to prevent Masawi's laptop from being able to be accessed by the FBI. I think FBI Director Robert Mueller personally awards Marion Spike Bowman with a presidential citation and cash bonus of approximately twenty five percent of his salary. Bowman, head of the FBI's National Security Law Unit, and the person who refused to seek a special warrant for a, a search of Zacharias Musawi, Zachariah Musawi's belongings before 9-11, is among nine recipients of the Bureau Awards uh, for Exceptional Performance. So that's who Spike Bowman was. The award comes shortly after the 9-11 Congressional Inquiry report saying Bowman's unit gave Minneapolis FBI agents, quote, inexcusably confused and inaccurate information, end quote, that was, quote, patently false. So that's who Spike Bowman is. Well, the interesting thing about him um, is there's this guy named Francis Boyle spoke to that guy, Spike Bowman, at a convention. They were having a discussion about the anthrax investigation. And one of the things this guy, Francis Boyle, told Spike, um, because he was sort of an expert on bioweapons, I think he had served in a previous administration of some kind, he told him that one of the first things they need to do is to isolate. It might have, he was suggesting maybe this came from a U.S. lab. We can't discount that. So you need to isolate all the available cultures that you, that the government has access to. And immediately after he shared this information privately with FBI agent Spike Bowman, those samples were mysteriously destroyed. Colleen Rowley um, and others have suspected that he was involved in that, um, that even Francis Boyle was like, well, th you know, I tipped him off to the idea of this and then they immediately got destroyed. The timing is a little bit suspicious there. 
Um, and apparently he would have had authority to order that. So um, it is interesting that some that he would have been involved in destroying evidence or preventing access to evidence for both attacks. That's not, there's a curious figure that I feel like deserves maybe looking deeper into. Obviously, that's that's something that Colleen and I got into in the book, but or during our interview. But yeah, absolutely, um, it's interesting. I mean, and and just it just sh- shows how they're each one of these people that you interview adds such a different aspect to the 9-11 story um, that it just, it's such a rich story that has so many interesting twists and turns in terms of the cover-ups that were happening. And not just after the fact by the 9-11 commission and the media and all that stuff or the Bush administration, I just mean in real time preventing people from accessing evidence like from the inside. I mean, there's so many examples of that. And it's useful to know the names of the people who may have been directly involved in that. And then it wasn't just incompetence, you know, that people from Alex Station um, were preventing information from coming through, or this guy Spike Bowman was possibly destroying evidence or hiding evidence. I mean, um, it, it deserves a lot more scrutiny. So I just feel like a lot of these things haven't been seized on by 9-11 researchers, and they need to be looked into more deeply. Absolutely. And there's a there's another person, someone who lost a loved one, his son, um, in the 9-11 attacks um, that you interview, uh, named Bob McElvain. I want you to just tell me how you met Bob originally and what, you know, what sets him apart from sort of the, the more, I guess, conservative 9-11 family steering committee point of view. Describe your relationship with them and sort of how that's evolved over the years and and why you wanted to interview him for your show. All right. Uh, during the 9-11 omission hearings in September 2004 in New York City, Bob was the very first family member I ever heard cry because they didn't know how their loved one died um, and they wanted to know. You know, the, the sadness that I felt from him was just unbelievable to me because um, he didn't know. And he wanted to know. And so I remembered that. I'll, I'll never forget it. And then I met Bob because the representative that I had at the time was a person by the name of Kurt Weldon, who was looking into what was called able danger. And we had the opportunity, or because of Bob, Bob met a friend of Kurt Weldon's who managed to get tickets to a town hall meeting. Um, to be able to ask questions of Kurt Weldon that I went to and ask questions of him. But because of Bob, we met at a Chinese restaurant one night in 2006 and talked to this friend of Kurt Weldon. And then, you know, that was the first time I ever met Bob, actually. But he lost his son, Bobby, on 9-11. And Bob is one of the few family members um, that I know of that got a body, you know, to be able to bury um, well, I don't know how many got that chance, but I know that there are many family members who did not get remains that are still waiting for the possibility that remains might be found, maybe in fresh kills or wherever they might be found, that are just hoping for something. But Bob managed to sadly get the body of his son, and you know, it took him a lot of years to get the courage to read the autopsy reports of his son and 
from the description of the autopsy reports, it sounds as though Bobby died due to explosion, due to some kind of a bomb. And, you know, I wanted to have him on to tell his story. And that's why I had him on. You know, Bob is an amazing individual. And what separates him from other 9-11 family members is that he's not afraid to uh, speak about the conclusions that he's reached with regards to the research that he's done into 9-11. He will absolutely tell you, uh, you know, what, what he thinks or what he knows happened that day. And so I, I tried to be supportive of him. And so I wanted to have him on to tell his side of the story. And I didn't do it for the controlled demolition advocates or anything like that. I did it for Bob. Again, the, the, the buildings were a crime scene where, where most of the people were killed that day. And it was just such a, an important story to tell from, from his perspective. Because you know, he's done so much work over the years trying to bring attention to this issue. Um, and so, you know, of course, when, I, of course. when I broke it back, Bob was, you know, one of the people that came to visit me in the nursing home and he did it every week. And when I left the nursing home and finally managed to get my own apartment, we continued that trend until this day. And I was in, I was in the nursing home four years ago, four and a half years ago. And we're still having breakfast every week on, you know, Wednesday. That's our breakfast day. And so it just never stopped. And we've been a shoulder for each other. Now, not, I don't know necessarily to cry on, but to talk about the issues that most other people seemingly don't want to talk about. So it's like almost like a therapy session. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And He's I've, just, uh, yeah, I've always um, found Bob to be very authentic and, um, you know, very, it's, it's a powerful um to watch him talk about this stuff let's hope that you know the that the more time passes the more it will become safe for people who feel it's too much of a third rail to to touch it eventually um but yeah it's it's been quite a long time and um i don't really necessarily empathize with people who don't want to touch it because i feel that i i i i'm on your side with this i mean i think that you know, even mainstream establishment journalists should have, there's no reason why they shouldn't just be curious about this instead of just like mocking loose change, you know? I mean, like even like someone like Jeremy Scahill was just mocking loose change with, um, with Eli Lake on Twitter a long time ago. And it seems like some of these people spend more energy mocking it than they do being curious about it. And that's just, that just makes me pissed off. It's like, why wouldn't you be curious who cares about who cares about all the truthers? Who even if you hate truthers, even if you think they're the stupidest people ever, wouldn't you still be curious about it? Like you really think you have all the answers? I mean, that's that's the strange part to me. I don't understand that. Well, it's so obvious that we relied to that there were a multitude of cover-ups that people should have been held accountable that weren't, that people were rewarded who didn't deserve to be rewarded. And none of these things caused people like Jeremy Scahill to, you know, take pause and think, well, gee, maybe I should question that. Or but maybe he, it's like I, Hillary Clinton. Maybe he has a public and a private position. You know, maybe he wants to save face in public. I, I, who knows? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, you know, I, I, how do you have a conscience? 
if you if you question 9-11 and keep it to yourself and are somebody who has a voice like Jeremy Scahill, that it's inexcusable to me. I don't how do you do that? But this is something I wrote in the introduction to my book. To those journalists who consider themselves alternative press but don't incorporate the fact that we were lied to about 9-11 or don't know the truth about 9-11 into whatever post-9-11 related story they report about, I have this to say. You are helping to create an extremely dangerous environment. History is being written, and it's simply the wrong history. Please consider or reconsider your stance on the issue of 9-11. Thank you. I don't think that's too much to ask. Of course not. I mean, but everyone just has such an emotional reaction to this stuff. I mean, I even got into Matt Taibbi um, about a year ago over this on Twitter because I said there was something in your book where you say that the PNAC phrase, a new Pearl Harbor, was taken out of context by 9-11 truthers and it's it's sort of not really important and it doesn't really mean anything. And, oh, if it means something to you, then that must mean you think Bill Crystal did 9-11. And, you know, that was sort of his framing in, in his book. And, you know, he has this mock conversation between Bill Crystal and Paul Wolfowitz and Cheney planning 9-11, sort of implying that that's what truthers thought. But yet he, just on a basic journalistic level make several factual errors because it wasn't just an incidental statement in the book. I mean, sorry, in Rebuilding America's Defenses. It was actually something that Don and Fred Kagan had written about and actually talked about before um, in other like interviews and publications. This is something that, this is sort of a neocon theme, the specific idea of a new Pearl Harbor, um, talking about when's going to be the next Pearl Harbor. I mean, this is not something... Um, you know, and so I just found it interesting that Matt Taibbi even, you know, t- just just chooses to take a more knee jerk approach, and um, and you know, I mean, I I actually like a lot of his journalism, and I feel like, you know, he just owes it to himself as a journalist to actually like seriously look into some of these things and not and 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 not look at it through the lens of well, what's this crazy, you know, theory about the neocons doing nine eleven? I mean, that's it's like just look at it from like a journalistic approach. It's like, you know, I mean, and also look at their connections to the, to the 2001 anthrax attacks and all the propaganda they helped put out. Um, I think that's relevant as well. You know, you can't ignore that. So it's like, once you put all these pieces together, um, it just, it just makes me angry that people like Matt Taibbi are, you know, completely refusing to, you know, to examine this. You called me a journalist when you introduced me and that's fine. I mean, that's essentially what I do, but I never considered myself to be a journalist, like a reporter, like, like Jeremy Scahill or, or any Phil Sheenan or any of the reporters that, uh, went to school or journalism school and, you know, so on and so forth and, and became journal. I never considered myself to be that. I just thought I was just an activist trying to do the right thing, you know, but these are journalists who should be, who can who call themselves the press? Who call themselves journalists and reporters? You know, and and they just aren't doing their jobs. Um, I want to finish with a quote from the book that that I I put in the beginning. Quote: I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism, 
and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word, end quote. And that was from Dr. Martin Luther King. I think your book offers a hopeful message. I mean, it's just the concept behind your book to me is hopeful because it's something new. Um, it's something, it's a, it's a new angle on all of this and, uh, it's also free. So everybody could check it out right now at we were lied to about dot com, and it's in PDF format and yeah, grab it, grab a copy of it. Yeah, please do. And, you know, pick up the slack. I can't do this by myself and neither can Robbie, neither can, you know, whatever activists are working on this issue, please read the book and and do something about it. Um, and where else can people find your work, John? And where can they find you on social media? Well, I'm, I'm John Gold on Facebook. I'm 9-11 Justice Now on Twitter. I had, you know, there's so many articles of mine that have been posted over the years. Uh, my website, which is... <laughs> yourbbsucks.com which is an old website that I started in January 2005 but I archived so much information on that site that it, it's really unbelievable. I go look at it today I can't believe it. People look at it today they can't believe it. So uh, 9-11 Blogger and you know, 911truth.org anywhere you know I guess just look up John Gold and 9-11 and especially my YouTube channel. I <laughs> I've made so many uh, informational videos over the years, and I think it was Pierce that referred to me as a filmmaker, and I never considered myself a filmmaker. I was just making little informational videos for people. Well, that's one thing I forgot to mention about you. Yeah, people can go to your YouTube channel and find um, a huge amount of very uh, interesting clips having to do with 9-11, and one of my favorites that I like to post all the time is the one that I call Hillary Clinton and 9-11 Truther which is her uh, bringing up the story about John Ashcroft not flying commercially leading up to the days of 9-11 and asking what the Bush administration knew about the attacks. Let me just say something about that. When sure. the, the August 6th PDB was released in May of 2002, and the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, and uh, I think it was Senator Byrd, and uh, Christopher Dodd, were openly questioning what did they know and when did they know it? This was essentially the same exact question that Cynthia McKinney was asking and was driven out of D.C. because of it. You know, uh, was just lambasted by all these people. Uh, and, and what happened to Hillary and all those people for doing the same exact thing? You know, nothing so far as I can see. So that's just an interesting little tidbit. Thank you so much for coming on today, John. Thank you, Robbie, for having me, and thank you for promoting my book. Thank you very much for promoting the book. It was my pleasure. All right, man. Have a good night. You too, John. And please consider donating to Media Roots Radio through Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio, you can donate as little as $1 per episode. Thank you very much. <laughs>